wake up, wake up, From Jerusalem, Israel, this is From the Midwest to the Middle East, the podcast that explores everything new in U.S. and Israeli economy. Here's your host, Philip Stein. I'm really pleased to be having this podcast today. First of all, this episode is brought to you by Philip Stein and Associates, the largest U.S. CPA firm in Israel, providing U.S. tax services to Israelis, Americans, corporations, startups, and anyone else needing them. Hi, it's been a while, and I'm glad we're back with a very exciting podcast, a very special guest. Our guest today is Amots Asael, who many of you may know from the Jerusalem Post. Uh, Amots writes a column that's been in the paper for 23 years called Middle Israel, which is a unique attempt to present in English mainstream Israel's views on anything from politics and society to business and religion. His five-part series in the Jerusalem Report about the future of the Jewish people won the B'nai B'rith Journalism Award for 2017. Amots also holds graduate degrees in journalism from Columbia University and in Jewish history from Hebrew University. He lives in Jerusalem with his wife, Nurit, and his three children. Welcome, Amots. Hi, Philip. It's good to speak with you again. And, uh, Likewise. There's always something to talk about in this country, whether the uh, current events or historical events, how they're connected to current events. So uh, I, I think my listeners are going to really enjoy this conversation. Let me get right started right away. I, I just made my third trip to China. Uh, in recent years, and it seems to me that Israelis are very comfortable doing business in China, despite the language and cultural differences. How do you how do you explain this phenomenon? Well, first of all, um, uh, what you say is absolutely true, and just to give people an idea of the scale of what is happening, uh, in 2015, to Israel's own astonishment, Israel's exports uh, to Asia, obviously dominated by exports to China, uh, surpassed for the first time ever exports to America. And um, China, whose um, uh, destination for uh, Israeli export was unthinkable uh, only a generation ago, is now emerging as a dominant presence in the middle of the Israeli economy, so much so that uh, China already is firmly established as the largest, the largest uh, source of Israeli importations. And... Um, as of uh, uh, 2016, that's already uh, reached uh, about $8 billion, and it keeps zooming up. So it's obvious, hmm. it's obvious uh, from uh, the point of view of Israeli history that we are pivoting here um, without anyone realizing it. We're pivoting uh, from uh, a Western-oriented economy to an Asian-oriented economy, uh, both in terms of imports and in terms of exports. Now, as far as what you're asking concerning... Um, the uh, ease with which Israelis seem to be uh, doing business over there. So first of all, for one thing, even those who do their business successfully do caution uh, that it takes a great deal of expertise and experience and caution, and you can't just barge into the Chinese scene with your uh, Western norms and assumptions about how to interact with people and what they mean when they say two certain things and the difference between uh, a written and an oral commitment. All these things need to be taken in consideration. However, it's clear that um, the Israeli presence over there is indeed broad and that uh, the dynamics are intensive. And I think that a major explanation here is the Jewish heritage uh, that harks back centuries, the heritage of storming commercial horizons, 
especially ones that are distant and exotic and difficult to penetrate. There is a Jewish heritage in this regard that harks back at least to the early Middle Ages, certainly to the aftermath of the Spanish expulsion, and then to what uh, Jewish merchants did and entrepreneurs did in Poland in the 17th century, and let alone what Jews did uh, as they began immigrating, immigrating in large numbers to America. I think what we're seeing today between Israel and China continues this heritage. It's a great, great answer and uh, very interesting that uh, I think very few people are aware of what you said at the beginning about how much trade is going on today. Uh, you know, America has always been the market and um, it's quite uh, eye-opening eye that uh, things are changing right b before our eyes. Let me, let me stay in China for a moment. Aside from our technology, are there other strategic reasons that China wants to strengthen their economic connections with Israel? Yes, and, and to fully understand uh, how dramatic um, the change I'm about to um, uh, describe here, uh, how dramatic it is, one needs to uh, look back to uh, Israel's establishment when David Ben-Gurion, at that um, precarious moment, already understood, and we have this in writing, him understanding back then in 1948 that Israel must, as he saw it, cultivate some kind of a relationship with China and with India. And uh, initially it seemed feasible. He ignored, even under those days, uh, challenging circumstances, he ignored uh, American misgivings. Uh, that was Harry Truman's America, misgivings about dealing with the evolving communist China. And uh, they really were, he and the Chinese really were on the, on the road to establishing relations when the Korean War broke out, and then other difficulties came along. And then when Mao took over, obviously China went the way it went, and all this was impractical. However, that was the beginning point. Then when Deng replaced uh, Mao, and with uh, his succession came this whole entirely different attitude towards economics in general and international relations, including that, um, things began to thaw, and it began with uh, arms purchases. Deng at the time... Uh, by complete coincidence, he rose to power along with the Russian or the Soviet invasion of, of Afghanistan, which extremely alarmed the Chinese, both because the Soviets suddenly emerged as very unpredictable and because the Chinese looked at their own arms at the time and they understood that they were antiquated and they needed some serious upgrading. That is how the relationship began. And um, it later, obviously, with the end of the Cold War, uh, became full diplomatic relations in 1992, and that's when commerce broke out and became completely, um, completely uh, unopposed. And, and at that initial stage, in other words, these first 25 years of Israeli-Chinese commerce, the buying and the selling on both sides was of the obvious. In other words, you saw here uh, Chinese toys, for instance, and, and clothing, and you saw there Israeli uh, agri-technology and also arms and, and other things that Israel knows how to do now. Um, there is a dramatic change in this. Uh, we in Israel have uh, contracted the Chinese in recent years to spearhead some of our most um, complex and costly uh, infrastructure projects. For instance, the Carmel tunnels that run under Haifa, the uh, Haifa-Carmel uh, railway that goes east into the, the first one that Israel led into the Galilee, the Tel Aviv subway that is being built right now, and plans for a future fast train between Tel Aviv and Eilat, which for now are still on the drawing board, but nevertheless, the three that I first mentioned were 
um, the Chinese are playing a major role in executing them. And the train to Eilat, the Chinese say they very much want it. And we know that Netanyahu also very much wants it to be the Chinese, but there are, are many hurdles on the way there. Uh, the, there is no Israeli budgeting yet for this. But if this happens, that would mean that the biggest and most ambitious infrastructure ever in Israel's history will, will be done in full cooperation uh, between Israel and China. This is in terms of what we get from them. In other words, they suddenly became for us, almost haphazardly, a major supplier of infrastructure projects. At the same time, we are becoming, for the Chinese in recent years, a major supplier of, of um, their future, uh, what they hope will be their future generation of innovators. Uh, this has happened, for instance, by the establishment in uh, Tsinghua of a center for um, hydrological and solar sciences in collaboration with uh, Tel Aviv University. Uh, not long before, uh, the Technion established a $130 million uh, technology institute from floor to ceiling uh, in Guangdong. And uh, the Ben-Gurion University did a similar project, is doing a similar project with uh, Jilin University. Uh, in other words, the Chinese have strategically decided to harness the Jewish state, whose reputation as a locomotive and as an engine of, of innovation and knowledge industries uh, has, has by now been established. They decided to harness Israel for the sake of leading their own industry into its post-industrial future. This is the kind of a relationship that Israel never previously had with any superpower. Wow. I, I, your, mo your note about the Chinese interest in building the Tel Aviv Eilat rail uh, led me to think about the Chinese, they call the famous, uh, well-known One Belt, One Road. Um, and actually, I, I was looking at their map, the, a, a railroad from the uh, Red Sea to, to the Mediterranean would be uh, would certainly fit into the Chinese this plan of theirs, the Belt and Road Initiative. So. It's, it's absolutely part of their vision. You're certainly right. And uh, some people warn in the West, are warning that the Chinese perceive all these types of deals that they're doing with anyone and everyone from New Zealand uh, to Israel, including, for instance, having recently bought Nuva here. Uh, and before that, on a smaller scale, cosmetics maker Ahava, this is all part of a broad global Chinese um, uh, takeover of companies, and some people are cautioning that the Chinese have in this a kind of um, uh, imperial um, uh, hidden agenda that, that Western countries would be, should be cautious about uh, engaging. I disagree with those cautions. Mm -hmm. I don't think the Chinese are, um, whatever imperial thinking they might have, which is something that is not part of Chinese heritage, uh, it wouldn't reach this far in the world, and it wouldn't be imperialism in the sense that uh, Western civilization conducted it over the past uh, two or so centuries. It's different, and I don't think we have anything to fear here. It's a very fruitful and promising relationship. Yeah, I, I think historically uh, the, ch the West has treated China much worse than China has, uh, has, has treated the West. So, uh, 
you know, I, I, I agree with you. I don't think they have those type of ambitions based on what I've read. Let me stay in Asia for a moment. Um, we're all aware of the successful trip by Prime Minister Modi to Israel last year and the fact that Air India can now fly over Saudi Arabia en route to Tel Aviv. What can we expect in the coming years regarding the India-Israel economic connection? Well, first of all, uh, India, like China, only f established full diplomatic relations with Israel in 92, although there were lower-grade um, relations uh, since the early 50s, but uh, only would allow Israel to hold a consulate in, in what then was called Bombay, Bombay and what now is Mumbai. They wouldn't let us have an embassy in Delhi, nor would they open one here. Um, that was part of their, uh, the era in Indian history uh, originated by Nehru, when they saw themselves as leaders of the non-aligned world, what they call the non-aligned bloc, uh, what others call the third world, they've since then changed course completely. Uh, they no longer uh, indulge in this kind of identity, and they certainly want to be industrially and economically speaking, where they're also democratically speaking, in other words, in the West. And from this stemmed an entirely different attitude towards Israel, which by now uh, celebrates more than... 25 years of, of, of true closeness and, and warmth. And uh, this includes already a pretty brisk um, trade, which uh, uh, I think is at a volume of $2 billion and growing. And the most incredible thing is that Israel has become uh, India's uh, second largest arms supplier after Russia, which is their traditional supplier. Hmm. And uh, this was once unthinkable. Uh, they used to historically... Uh, be um, on the Arab world side whenever it came to this conflict here. All that has obviously changed. At the same time, Israel is also extremely present and welcomed to India's ongoing effort to um, modernize and expand its farming. And once again, this, this is a match made in heaven. Uh, the distance is short relatively. Their needs are bottomless. And our ability to supply them is also such that they happily buy what we sell. All right, that's, that sounds extremely promising. Now, Asia has other significant economies, such as the Gulf states, Indonesia, Malaysia, which do not have diplomatic relations with Israel. Can we expect some breakthroughs with those countries with regard to economic ties? Uh, we'll start with uh, the bad news and, and proceed to the better news. Uh, the, the bad news is Malaysia. Malaysia has been and remains um, harshly anti-Israeli and its leader, Mahathir Mohammed, who recently returned to power, um, is also um, virulently anti-Semitic, uh, including in writing. Uh, and that's a separate issue, that's a separate problem. I think that Malaysia suffers from a complex because of the way it haphazardly and unwittingly gave rise to Singapore. Singapore came into being because Malaysia understood that Chinese tail end of its, of its um, landmass as, as um, a nuisance, and they let them go, and, and the Singaporeans took the little island they found themselves on and created on it an economic miracle, and one which is in a truly intimate alliance with Israel, because Israel was the one that back in the mid-60s went to Singapore and told Singapore, look, you're now newly independent, you have hostile Muslim neighbors, the powers for each for its own reason will not help you we are prepared to help you build from scratch the military that you say you need. And the Singaporeans agreed. And, and Israel built for them their military, which is state-of-the-art, well-supplied, well-trained, and, and, and widely respected. 
and um, the Malaysians were immediately to the south of all this, saw this, and they were angry at themselves for having um, um, created all these circumstances. Mm-hmm. So that's Malaysia. I don't see any sign of an approaching breakthrough in Israel's relations with them. However, neighboring Indonesia is an entirely different story. They never had this kind of complex. Uh, they're, they're extremely big, uh, one of the world's most populous countries with more than 200 million people. All this on the one hand. On the other hand, they are Muslim and as such uh, uh, are very reluctant to fully and openly uh, waltz with Israel. However, uh, they are trading with Israel. Recently, they've also begun to allow Israelis, um, uh, people carrying Israeli passports to enter their country. And, and business with them is growing. It's already about half a billion dollars. And uh, Israel is importing from them all kinds of raw materials like plastics, uh, timber, uh, coal. And uh, Israel is uh, exporting uh, to them uh, all kinds of agro-technologies like uh, drip irrigation. And this is steadily growing, and we have very good reason to believe that the Indonesians are looking forward to a future of, of closer relations. And I think, therefore, that it wouldn't be unthinkable to see by the end of the decade, or by the beginning of next decade, also the beginning of some formal relations, maybe a trade office uh, in Jakarta and in Tel Aviv. As for the Gulf states, uh, it ebbs and flows. The problem there, in my view, is that uh, the Gulf states um, have, first of all, to create their own economies. What they have for today, for now, is um, uh, are very uh, one-dimensional economies, and uh, they uh, only... or predominantly live off of uh, exporting oil and gas. And as long as they have not truly diversified their economies, um, I think their need for a closer economic relationship with Israel uh, will not be urgent. It will become more urgent and apparent um, the more they diversify, as they clearly are planning to do. At the same time, we do see that there is a growing pragmatism, at least in Saudi Arabia and in some of the neighboring countries, certainly in Oman, um, to a lesser extent in the Emirates and to a lesser extent in Kuwait and, and to a completely problematic extent with Qatar. But nevertheless, there is a growing pragmatism over there where most governments are beginning to openly say, albeit in private conversations, that the Palestinian problem has for them become a nuisance mm-hmm. and uh, that they would like to see already the region surpass this problem and embrace Israel with everything it has to offer. Well, that's uh, actually a very promising picture to describe, uh, and that, very interesting. I, I had, I know that the ties with Singapore go back to the 60s, but I never thought about it in the context that Malaysia, uh, well, they all they have to do is look across the, the peninsula and see what, what they could have had. So... Um, it must be very... Right. This, this is without disparaging the Malaysians. They've got some great accomplishments themselves. Uh, they, 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 they've done some very impressive things over there. But emotionally speaking, uh, they've made mistakes, uh, certainly when it came to Israel. Yes. All right. Let me finish in this very interesting conversation about Asia, looking east. After what we've all been watching the last uh, about two weeks ago, I think now, about the what's going on in Korea. Do you see any hope for reconciliation on the Korean Peninsula? And if so, how might Israel benefit from this historic change? My impression is that the real story behind uh, the summit between uh, Kim and Trump 
is not about um, uh, the U.S. and uh, North Korea, but about North Korea and South Korea. I'm, I, it's just a gut feeling, but my gut feeling is that uh, the deal for reunification is in the making. And uh, this is what is really at play over there. It's in the best interest of both countries that goes without saying. But it seems as if this leader understands very um, um, pragmatically um, that the formula on which he and his two ancestors um, have worked is, is running out of steam. And uh, it, it cannot endure, certainly not uh, with um, uh, the rest of the world perceiving them uh, the way it does. And it's therefore in his, as a, in his politically existential interest to reconcile with the South somehow. The South's interests go without saying. They want a peaceful neighborhood like any democracy. And I therefore think that, and also judging by what we have so far seen in terms of uh, the chemistry and the, um, the dynamic between the leaders of both Koreas, there is reason to believe that they have begun actually discussing uh, some kind of a reunification. Having said this, in my view, it won't be, it certainly shouldn't be, but it also won't be the kind of reunification that happened between East and West Germany, which was swift um, at breakneck speed and essentially was uh, the West imposing itself on the East, so much so that some people compared that to the German term Anschluss. In other words, the way Hitler took mm -hmm. over yeah, Austria. Uh, Austria. Yes, yes. Uh, I don't mean here now morally. I mean I mean, administratively. In other words, the big imposing itself on the small. Uh, this is probably, it certainly is not what should be if the Koreas want to unite. And in, I, in my um, gut feeling, it's also not what they have in mind. They probably have a much more managed and cautious and, and, and gradual uh, reunification, one that perhaps can take long decades, maybe even more than a generation, and one that would leave the North as part of the process rather than the way it happened in Germany where the communists were evicted uh, from anything and everything that they, any position that they held, some of, some of them even from the very country. And the West came in and did everything, West Germany, that is, came in and did everything on its own. This is not, in my view, what will happen in Korea. Having said all this, if indeed we approach a situation whereby within, say, a decade, North Korea becomes part of a, some kind of a reunited greater Korea, its most urgent need will be to modernize its farming. The North, even from the South uh, perspective, would be re-engineered as the entire peninsula's breadbasket or provider because um, the, the size of the farming uh, industry over there right now is uh, much larger than what it is in any developed economy. And, and transitioning overnight over there from, from, from this kind of structure to a completely industrialized structure would be difficult for everyone to digest. So I think that there would be a great, one of the um, first things a reunited Korea would do is dramatically develop the North's farming. And if that's where they're headed, Israel goes in as a major, a major um, enabler of this kind of plan. Okay, that's uh, we're ending. We started on an optimistic note in China, and we're ending in an optimistic note in Korea. Uh, I really want to thank you. This is, I think, my listeners uh, will have learned a lot today. Um, if people want to know more about your writings and and what you're up to, how can they follow you, Amots? Uh, well, they could Google my name. <clears throat> uh, they could um, uh, click my website, which is middleisraelinoneword.net, 
And uh, through it, they can also email me. And I welcome readers' letters um, already for a quarter of a century. Well, I thank you again for myself and the interesting uh, information you brought today and for my listeners who I know you'll uh, probably be hearing from some of them. Thanks again, Amots. Thank you, Philip. I hope you enjoyed our podcast. Feel free to visit us at www.pstein.com or look for Philip Stein & Associates on Facebook and LinkedIn.